Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Supporting nationals. It's a hot-button topic in the world of missions and one that we've interacted with before on the podcast. Today we continue the conversation, this time with Brother Damon Matachera, missionary to Zambia, Africa. We'll talk church planting strategy and humanitarian outreach, but the main topic of discussion on the program today centers around the pitfalls associated with the support of national preachers. Brother Damon has served in the country of Zambia in Southern Africa since 2006, and he's thinking critically about these and other important missions topics. I appreciate you joining us, and I hope that you will think with us about some of the complexities involved in the support of national workers. With that introduction, let's get into the conversation with Damon Matachera. Brother Damon, your exposure to missions in Zambia I guess goes all the way back to your teenage years. And even though you're still a, a relatively young man, young family, you've got uh, quite a bit of experience in that part of the world. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about how you came to know the Lord and how God put missions in your heart in general and how he directed you to the country of Zambia in particular. All right. Well, thanks, Brother Lee. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. You know, I got saved, except the Lord back in August of 1991. Um, that was in upstate New York, and our family was blessed to be a part of a really good Bible-believing church. Uh, during that time, my father was enrolled uh, in the Bible Institute and actually on the path to be involved in missions. And so even from a young age, I had the desire to be a missionary. I, I remember, you know, even in school when, you know, everyone was talking about uh, what they want to be when they grow older. And I would always, it would come to me and they would say, uh, Damon, what do you want to do? And I'd be like, I want to be a missionary. Uh, and back then, I, I probably didn't understand really what it meant, the, the call of God um, at that time, uh, just being really young. But uh, that was just a desire that I had. I wanted to be part of that adventure, that adventure that was connected with the Great Commission. And I really attribute that. Uh, to my father, really just bringing me up in a way to love the Lord and to want to be be a part of what was going on uh, in the church and in the world and the ministry abroad. From there, uh, you know, our church we took missions trips. Uh, we got we tried to visit other missionaries, but in 1999, uh, our church took a missions trip over to the country of Zambia, Africa. Um, and I know uh, Lee, you've been there I think several times, uh, if, if yeah, I'm correct, a couple of times. Yes, sir. Um, and in 99 was really our first time to visit, and we were blown away. Um, it was an amazing trip, uh, just just amazed at the great need uh, and the great opportunity to serve the, to serve the Lord. Um, and, and like you mentioned, I, I was really young. I wasn't, you know, um, the one considering to be a missionary to Zambia at that time. But through that trip, the Lord actually touched the heart of my father uh, to go back into full-time service in Zambia. Uh, when we got back from that trip, you know, he, he gathered us around the table and he said, hey, you know, family, uh, what do you think about going back to Zambia as full-time missionaries? Uh, it, it wasn't a giant surprise because that's kind of the direction that we were headed. 
though we didn't know, we didn't know where, we didn't know what country, um, and the Lord opened the door. So one year from that missions trip, we were back full time in Zambia, uh, and mm-hmm. it was a, 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 an amazingly quick turnaround. Um, but really, when when we arrived in Zambia, I had just turned eighteen. I had just graduated. Um, I was really quite young, um, and and during that time, I was still trying to to get answers to some of those big questions that a lot of young people are trying to find out. And sure. you know, oh, I was you know pretty persuaded that God wanted me to be involved in missions. Um, that was my desire. I didn't really have you know any direction where, when, how the logistics of, of all of that. And so our first term in Zambia was really not only a time for me to be involved in missions firsthand, uh, really in every way from helping start the church to counseling and preaching, teaching, discipling. Um, But I was also looking more inward in my life, trying to figure out, you know, Damon, what what is my plan? Where am I going to go from here? Um, I I didn't want to stay in Zambia just because it was convenient um, because, you know, my father was there. I I didn't want to take anything for granted. Uh, I wanted God really to speak to me. And so to understand and to realize the need, uh, that that definitely was there. Uh, And there was a great opportunity. But after, you know, really looking after some godly counsel uh, and receiving God's direction in my own life, by the end of that term, um, you know, I knew for sure God wanted me to continue in Zambia. And at that point, I was on the road to do just that. You know, I came back from our first term, and Lisa and I, we got married. Uh, and by June of 2006, we finished our deputation. One of the things that comes up all the time on the program here is the is the importance of the local church and the relationship between the local church and, and missions. And you mentioned the the importance that the church played and, and the, the emphasis of missions in the church where you grew up. But uh, another thing, I love hearing about the role of the family and the home in producing missionaries in a sense and and the way that a family can get a burden and develop a a multiple a multi-generational engagement in foreign missions that is always a joy to my heart to see that develop and i do believe that it's that it's really a, a critical element of of fulfilling the great commission that families need to be engaged and children need to be raised in an, in an atmosphere where that kind of uh, involvement is encouraged. So right. I appreciate yeah. you relating that about your, about your, your youth and the engagement of your father and the influence that he had on your heart for missions. That's a blessing. Yeah, it was vital. It really was in my own life for sure. So transitioning to uh, the, the field of Zambia as a supported missionary yourself back in 2006, I, if I, if I'm not mistaken, you, you started off um, in the Copper Belt province. So you did some 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 time working with some working with some other leadership and and I guess acclimating uh, you and your family to the to the culture there. But eventually, the goal developed to uh, relocate to the eastern province, if I'm not mistaken, and closer to the city of Chipata, where you're located now. And I guess that was back in 2011. Do I have the timeline pretty close? 
That perfect. That's correct. Yeah, that's when we yeah. arrived. So in 2011, you you really began to dig in. You've you've developed some some convictions of your own about how missions is to be conducted. You've you're you're well acquainted with the people and with the culture there. So since since digging in in the eastern province, what's been your strategy for ministry and church planting so far? Where you're located now? You know, it's funny talking about uh, a strategy. Um, you know, it's really, it really has evolved. Um, I mean, from the time that we arrived in Zambia in, in 2000, uh, through the 11 years that we were in the Copper Belt, um, I had a, maybe a, a different strategy coming to 2011, where we are now in the Eastern province. Um, again, it, it's probably, it probably would look like a totally different, uh, strategy in missions. Um, just because looking back, we've had so much exposure, um, with other missionaries, other great missionaries doing great works, uh, being able to learn from different people um, with things that worked and things that didn't work, <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. and so we have we have the benefit of a lot of the experiences uh, of of others that have you know that were here before us. Uh, in addition to the mistakes that we made ourselves, <laughs> and, yeah. and the Lord knows we made plenty. But if I can say maybe our strategy right now. Uh, since 2011, being here, uh, our goal really has been to establish really a central point in the village to use in reaching the surrounding area, the other villages, and even the bordering chiefdoms. So, so the idea has been to establish a model church to work from in trying to reach the larger region. Right, exactly. Um, you know, but when in 2014, when we came to the village of Benjere, which is where uh, our church, Chimbekezo and Bingwa Baptist, where that is right now, I didn't go to that village, uh, you know, and, and say, okay, guys, we're going to start a church here. You know, on February 1st, you know, we're having Sunday services. <laughs> um, it, it, a little different than that. Um, we spent three years just having Bible studies, three years just discipling and getting to know the people in that village. I would go one, maybe two days a week, and I would sit under a tree literally with these men just to talk with them and teach them. Uh, and there wasn't any, any pressure. There wasn't a pressure of who was going to get what position, who was going to be you know, the usher, who was going to be the door greeter. There were no expectations. Um, they were there uh, to learn the word of God. And, and I yeah. purposely did it like this because there's, you know, once you, you immediately just go in and we're starting a church, sometimes you can get ahead of God. And I wanted the people just to, to grow naturally and the church to even grow organically. Yes. As well. You know, brother, brother Damon, I think that uh, that kind of approach, that sort of strategy uh, is related to, to the larger topic that that we're going to interact with today in a place like Zambia and, and uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa. There is a form of godliness. It's not like that the place is devoid of churches or or even some semblance of Christianity. But there's a great need for the for the pure gospel and for Bible believing churches. There are churches, by and large, they're not the right kind of churches, and many in many cases they're not gospel preaching churches. But when from the beginning the announcement is going to be, here's the new church, that that has such a novelty among religious people that the right. opportunists show up <laughs> looking exactly. for some kind of responsibility because because right. in that within that culture, those titles uh, 
Uh, I mean, everything, everything is built around that kind of that, that power. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fear power type of type of dynamic and type of culture there in sub-Saharan Africa. So if you can get a title, man, that's a, that's a big deal within your community. Whereas if you can, if it can develop more organically, you have the opportunity to see who actually has the gifting, who actually has a calling, who actually has spiritual character and right. so that's an interesting, it's not that it's the only approach. It's not that it's the only way to do it, well, of course. Um, but it is yeah, an interesting absolutely. approach that sort of heads off. sounds like it would head off some of the problems that are, that are typical for that part of the world. You know, you're, you're exactly right. And, and by no means the way that we have done it, um, would I say that it's how it needs to be done in every country around the world. Um, sure. This certainly is, you know, what we've learned and what we've seen, you know, to work in our village in eastern Zambia, uh, but definitely there are some concepts that are that definitely overlap, and that can be applied anywhere. Um, but but yeah, so we were we were trying to gather my, like a core group together, and I would say that was like my first phase of ministry, just really pouring myself into these men, um, and then. You know, after three years, then obviously when people are getting saved, these men that have been discipled already, um, their families are coming to the Bible study, uh, and and you can actually see a, a structure of something looking like a church coming together. You have believers, you have families; they're all coming under a tree now. The natural question is, hey. Uh, why don't we meet on Sunday? <laughs> or well, maybe we are a church. <laughs> and uh, and at that point, that's when we really start to to grow and to to really want to see some growth in these people and to build something that is sustainable. Um, and so yeah. we would really go into more of an advanced form of discipleship to really ground that core group even more as we organize this this body of believers into an organized structure of the church. Um, so that sure. would be like, our, yeah, our first phase one, if you will. And that's where we are right now. We've, we've just kind of finished this phase. I wish that the, that the, that the strategy that you just described were, were not so novel approach within missions because pl- church planning right. is more than, than the acquisition of buildings. And just because as it's been said, you can take a, a mound of dirt, poke a hole in the top of it. It doesn't make it a volcano. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and for that matter, acquiring a building and putting a sign up does not equate a church. Uh, the church right. is people. And so starting under a tree and letting the people get a burden for having a church, uh, that more organic approach is, is, does have, uh, it seems to me, greater potential to be something that is sustainable and something that is more long lasting. But that also, you, you also were led to establish something which you refer to as Hope Zambia. I guess that dates back to 2018. Tell us what is Hope Zambia and how does that relate to your, to your strategy moving forward? Um, Hope Zambia, basically we established it, yeah, like you said, 2018. Um, and it, it, it's really funny. It, it never, it didn't really originate, um, with a grand scheme in mind. We, we kind of had to make it just for logistics sake and for our, our legal status in the country, there was a mess up with paperwork. Um, and so just to kind of move forward with the ministry, uh, we created Hope Zambia, <laughs> Um, okay. But the vision, the vision behind Hope Zambia definitely started earlier in 2015. And, and this is kind of when 
uh, our our focus really uh, it did not change off of what we want to do as church planners because that is our priority. Um, I mean, we're here to start churches, to train men uh, and women uh, in in the Word of God, and to send them out, you know, to fulfill the Great Commission in their own environment. Um, so that is our priority. But at the same time, we wanted to encompass that vision, to enlarge it, to include um, reaching out with different projects. You can call them, um, you know, compassion projects. You can call it humanitarian aid, relief aid, uh, different different names for it. But it, and that really is provided. Uh, a great platform to preach the gospel and to kind of position ourselves in reaching the area, um, not just Ben Jerry, but other places as well. So I do want to get into that uh, in, in, a, in a bit and talk a little bit with you about the Compassion Projects. One other question, however, before we move on in terms of the and, and, and engage the subject of supporting nationals, which is which is where I, I would like to spend the, the bulk of our conversation here. In terms of your stra- the strategy that, that has developed there in the Eastern province, you went out, you've made reference to the, the establishing a central point of ministry in a village. So there was evidently a, uh, the, the, the selection of the location was strategic, evidently, uh, Benjire, um, the, the village, apparently you, you, deemed that as being a, a strategic location. And yet right. you did start in a village as opposed to a city and you're near, uh, relatively close to uh, a city of some significance in the Eastern province, Chipata. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you're now working ba- from the village back into the city in hopes of establishing a work, work there. My curiosity is just simply that's, that's, um, that's an interesting approach working from the village to the city rather than from the city to the village. I'm just, I was just curious about how that developed and, and if that was intentional. Um, when we first arrived in the Chapada area, uh, we really, when, when we went out to the village, we definitely saw that there was a great need uh, in the village, the village area. So when I say the village, that that's kind of like a way, it's like a giant area. Um, there could be 50,000 people living in one kingdom of the village. Uh, and, and there could be hundreds of villages, little villages in this area that I'm just going to call the village. But there is such a great need in this area. I mean, witchcraft is just so prominent. Um, I mean, we have this group called the Nyau, and they'll dress up in animals, like animal skins. Uh, they might dress up like an animal, uh, really believing that they're taking on the embodiment, the spirit of this beast. And they'll just run through the village, just intimidating uh, and instilling fear uh, in the local people. And so between all of the witchcraft and the witch doctors and really there being a very limited gospel presence or even no gospel presence in the village, that kind of led us to to start uh, in that area versus starting in the city. And like you mentioned, uh, in the city of Chapada, there are churches there. There is a form of gospel um, presence, but it's a very, very weak one. Um, Whereas in the village, there really, in many places, there is no gospel presence at all. Um, Like in Benjeri, there was no church. Um, These people had no church culture, if you will. Um, They didn't really know how things would work or how things should work. Um, and, and that kind of even goes back, I'm going to take a little bunny trail, but it, it goes back to like the topic 
um, one of the needs that really I had is to to teach them how we how do we worship God? How do we move forward? How do we reach others with the gospel? What does a church look like? Um, and so I would teach my core group, and then they in turn could translate that within their own culture. Um, sure. And so just now we're we're getting to the point where you know I have that core group established. They are discipled, um, and this kind of goes to my phase two of ministry, which I didn't mention yet, which is with the group that I have of established leaders, we want to send them out now to, to further villages farther out to start their own Bible studies, to raise up their own disciples. And then as these new ministry areas are born, um, leaders that are rising up from those new uh, preaching points you know, coming back to Chambakezo where we can ground them further in the word of God with more advanced theological training. So that's kind of where we're, we are right now. Um, in fact, this week we are in the middle of planning um, our guys going out and starting new Bible studies, going out to new areas. And this kind of frees up a lot of my time as well, because now I'm really focusing on, on just the men. I, don't, I can really step back from the church. Um, I would say for the last year, I haven't even preached at Chimbacazo. Um, you know, I go there to be a mentor um, and to ju- just to kind of watch how they're doing, what they're doing, um, and to give them that encouragement for, for this transitional time. But really, my involvement is what, during the week when I'm with them and I'm really mm-hmm. grounding them further in the Word of God. And then in turn they teach and preach to their own people. Well, that, that is, that is the goal is that the work might become indigenous and it is ultimately not dependent upon you as the foreign missionary. And you can give yourself to mentoring and discipling men. Phase two sounds like the multiplication phase. And that's a really exciting place in the, in the progress of the work and I guess that that is a pretty good segue to the, the subject of supporting nationals, because it is actually precisely at this phase where the temptation would be to pour money into some guys so that they can give themselves more fully to the rural evangelism and the, the village Bible studies and so forth, so as to more rapidly multiply the effort. I, I, that's, that, is, that, that is an understandable temptation at this juncture in the work. And that is one of the hot button issues in that part of the world uh, that every missionary is going to have to develop some convictions and policy about. Uh, that is the support of national pastors and evangelists. So right. uh, let, me, let me try to frame this subject because I know it's something that you've interacted with there. And it's something that you in the last year or so have, have written about. And I think that you and I have a, have a lot of agreement about this subject, but it's something that is a, it's a conversation that really, really needs to happen. It needs to happen out loud on some level uh, in the interest of the enterprise of missions, because there, there is a real temptation in, in American sending and an American mission support. And, and of course, this, this is critical to your ministry because you are supported by churches in the States. You, you would not be full-time supported in the country of Zambia if it were not for the interest and the investment of American churches. But there's this, right. there's this motivation nowadays, and it's, it's, it's been for many years this has been developing, 
this more bang for your buck approach to missions where the idea and the, 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 the proposal is, why should we invest in American missionaries when we can invest directly in national pastors and evangelists? They already know the language. They're already immersed in the culture and they can operate on a fraction of the uh, of the resources that it takes an American family to work from. And I was exposed to this issue, Brother Damon, as you mentioned, the first time you and I met actually was in uh, in Zambia. I was visiting uh, one of your fellow missionaries there. We had a meal in your home. That was my first exposure to your to your family. But all the way back there in 2008, I was confronted with this issue. And I went over as an American pastor, and I actually, at that time, well, that 2008 was the first time that I went. It was a year or two later, probably that uh, that that I met you. I'm not, I'm a little fuzzy on the on the timeline, but at that time, we had had a man that came by our church in Alabama, and uh, told about the opportunity to support nationals and made some of the standard arguments uh, in favor of that format. And brother, to be honest with you, in 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 our simplicity, in my simplicity, this made perfect sense. Why why wouldn't we support a guy? Look look how poor they are. Look 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 right. at look at how little they're getting along with. Look at how much we have. Why wouldn't we do this? And so I was exp- and I won't go into it, but I was exposed to three different philosophies on this subject. I got, but I also got to see firsthand in that first trip to Zambia. I got to see a bit of the manipulation and the abuse of the system. So the, sure. so the personal exposure was really enlightening for me. In fact, the man that we um, had been persuaded to support, we found out that he was not a pastor. He was an assistant pastor. I am an assistant pastor. I'm not saying that it is, that it is dishonorable to, to hold such an office, but when you take support to, for being something other than you are, that's misleading. That and and that's not that's never appropriate because that's without integrity. Exactly. So it prompted me that it, that whole experience prompted me to do some reading on the issue. I've been having conversations like this around this topic ever since, and I realize that there's a limitation to the anecdotal evidence and arguments. But I'm wondering if you would relate at least as a starting point, because our experience does serve to frame our understanding of these issues and the questions that we raise. How were you exposed to this in the field of Zambia? And and how did that help to shape the the, the way you understand the issue and how you've how you've uh, asked the difficult questions and developed your present convic- convictions on the subject? Um, so, yeah, so we've definitely been exposed to this new, uh, and like you said, not so much new, but this different uh, methodology in missions with supporting uh, national pastors to go in place of uh, American or, or just Western uh, traditional missions. Um, now, I think we have to understand one thing is that a lot of times people are thinking that to support pastors these national pastors means the opposite is that we don't support them or that we are not really behind them um, and that we are trying to do the jobs ourselves instead of the nationals doing it when that's really not the case. It's not an either or like if you support the, you know, American missionary, then you're not really getting behind the national, Um, you know, with our ministry, our job is to empower the national. Our job is to, uh, to teach and to ground them in the word of God so that they can go out. You know, the argument is that they already are integrated in their own communities, these national local men and women. 
Um, the argument is that they know how to communicate in their local language and they know how to communicate in a way that the people understand. And I totally agree with this. Um, sure. And this is why having partnerships with local people on the ground is vital. We need to partner with these people. We need to partner with national, uh, national Christians to further the gospel. There will be no forward momentum with the gospel to the regions beyond if we cannot figure out how to form this partnership. But the question is, what is the difference between empowering and providing? That has to be the question we, we ask with this, this topic at hand. Because when we provide and create a system of dependency, we, we become their good-natured patrons that can pull the strings. We create the strategies and, uh, and we expect them to follow us. And if they don't follow our lead, if they don't do things the way that we want, want things done, then we can simply choose to close the valve to their American funding. And this is not a partnership. This is, <laughs> this is quite the opposite. So actually, and, and to be clear, I am not um, calling into question the motives of, of all of those that advocate the, the support of national preachers and evangelists and so forth. Um, I, I think that probably in its origin, this is very well motivated. But if, oh, the, object totally. is to, if the object is to empower national pastors and, and, and national workers, recognizing that that we do want them to meet their to to reach their own people. That's the whole. That I mean, that's the that's the enterprise in a nutshell. Um, yeah. Sometimes because because money complicates relationships, sometimes the financial investment actually undermines that objective, and that's a difficult that's a difficult concept to for Americans in particular to get a hold of because. Uh, um, the American mentality is that you can throw money at anything and fix anything with your dollars. And that's just not, that's just not the case. No, not at all. <laughs> and I like what you said that um, we can't judge the motives of um, really good natured people stateside that are trying to further the gospel. I really think that those churches and those people that do support a system of supporting nationals, they have a great heart. They really do. Um, and I'm not, I can't judge them for that, but I really think that we have to evaluate our methods um, to make sure that we're, we're building a work that's going to last and that we don't kind of undermine the very work that we're trying to build in the lives of these, these new Christians that are living abroad. Um, I was reading a, a book, and, and I understand that you know with, with these different books, I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I was reading uh, Toxic Charity, and I, and I like this quote. He said, giving to those in need what they can be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people. Um, and I think that's the danger of, of this whole system of supporting the national. Because, because of uh, our, our good-natured hearts, you know, we're creating a system that has low expectations, no accountability. Yeah. It's building in some some way a form of, of corruption. And ultimately, we're setting up our, our men and women to fail and for these churches not to be able to go out and to, to duplicate what they what was done with them. It's, it's a really difficult problem. 
Sure. So let's let's try to uh, articulate this these th- this problem. Uh, I guess as much as we can in the time afforded, line by line. What what is at stake with the support? So we've addressed this sort of in a you you've just you've just addressed this in sort of general terms, but more specifically, what's at stake with the support of national workers with foreign money? What what is the problem here? In in what ways particularly do we stand to hinder? The work of of indigenous biblical missions and and evangelistic zeal through our support of nationals. Can can you break that down a little bit more and be be a bit more specific about how this could how precisely might this be problematic on the ground in the mission field? Maybe if I can break it down a little bit um, in some ways that I can see how this system could undermine the local church. Um, And that's kind of how I see it happening. The goal of being a church planner is to start churches. I mean, that's kind of what we want to do. We want to start these churches. We want people to get saved, to be discipled. We want um, pastors to be um, at the helm, and we want churches to be able to be um, indigenous and self-governing. But how are they going to learn to respect their own pastor um, to to really even support or to tithe. How are they going to learn any of that when, uh, when all of the, the money, when all of the funding is coming from outside their village or outside their town from uh, a people far, far away? You know, and another thing that we don't consider is that these national men, a lot of times, they're despised by their own people. In that relationship between a congregation and their pastor. This is this is a two way street. It it affects it affects both the congregation and the pastor and their relationship to each other. For one thing, it is a congregation's privilege and responsibility to support its own pastor. And in the same way, that's we regard it in that sense stateside. Um, it would be it would be a shame to us to not have the opportunity to support our own pastor. Well, that that principle doesn't change because you pro- cross a geopolitical bo- border or because you go to a place that's got a lower standard of living. When the support of the pastor is not localized like that, uh, number one, it, it can affect the pastor's lifestyle and his standard of living in such right. a way that it undermines the respect of the congregation. Because now, in and, and I saw this firsthand the first time that I went to Zambia. Um, I won't elaborate, but the if if the, the pastor, the congregation expect, I understand he's worthy of double honor, but you you can't necessarily put a dollar amount on that. Especially you can't do that with an American mentality. He's going to lose all credibility if he lives so far above their own standard right. of living. So that's that's yeah, a true. real problem. But additionally, when when local churches stateside send support directly to the national pastor and bypass their that local church it breeds a lot of suspicion it 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 cultivates it cultivates doubts in the minds of the people very often about the sincerity and the motives of that pastor and i'm not even suggesting that in every case those are legitimate suspicions but the suspicions themselves serve to undermine the, the, the leadership capacity of that man. It's very true. And we've seen it many, many times here in Zambia. 
Um, but, you know, I would even go so far as to say that, um, you know, a lot of times when we talk about a national pastor receiving support, that we always have a problem with it if he's living above the means of the people he's ministering to. But I would even go farther to say that even if he is receiving support to live within the average means, I think it's still wrong in principle because the people are still not going to get behind this man, this man of God. They're, they've still lost respect. They, and, and really, are they even a church at that point? That's hard to tell. Yeah, this has been an observation that has been made in missions for a long time. We're we're not. This is not a new issue. This is not the first time, or, or, not by a long shot, that these that these things are being hashed out. Uh, John Nevius was a Presbyterian missionary to China, um, and he wrote on this. I mean, th- this is a this is this is well back in missions history, and he had, he observed this very thing that. Um, when the when the ministry is professionalized in that way, it undermines the credibility of the pastor, and generationally, it does professionalize the ministry oftentimes and undermines the call of God. Uh, it right. God forbid that uh, that we should look upon the ministry of a pastor, the ministry of an evangelist as an occupation among many other occupations. It's not that. Yes. It is a vocation. And that if that is, is confounded, true. we are going to we're we're gonna have uh we're gonna have the ministry full of hirelings that are that are gonna flee as soon as the wolves show up and and we're not gonna have a real stable, spiritually vibrant work. Uh, I agree with you. And and the thing is we can't look at the ministry like it's like it's a job um, because we're talking about people that are in the village living in deep poverty and i mean if i went to the village today and i started offering money to to work for me um i would have the fastest growing church in africa it, it would be easy um but because of that's just because of how desperate the people are and and uh and just how bad things are in the village and so in an effort to create a system, um, you know, if we if we have the system of, uh, uh, of supporting national pastors um, and, and we say, well, we have to do it, we have to make it, uh, make them accountable by adding all these different forms that they should fill in or such and such, then we end up creating a monster that really has nothing to do with God in the end and everything to do with numbers. And so now... The, the national pastor has so much pressure to come up with all these numbers and to come up with these results to feed his U.S. patrons. Yeah, I, I'm extremely concerned about that because the the and and I have heard it framed in that in that way, where uh, you know whatever the case may be, monthly or quarterly reports are expected to be turned in, and you're supposed to report. These national preachers are supposed to report the number of conversions, the number of baptisms, the number of churches planted, and uh, their their support is uh, at least to some degree dependent upon their continued results. That creates a level of pressure that is very, very unhealthy, and uh, yeah. it, 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 it can really cultivate the wrong sort of motives and a lot of misrepresentation. Now, now however, Brother Damon, to, to be fair, we have that problem at times 
in our mentality about supporting American foreign missionaries. It's it's where where guys from the states are not are are less than honest in their prayer letters because because they feel the pressure to produce results so that they can maintain or grow their support base that that kind of practice is it, there's no integrity in that well i agree i mean and when you look at um you know foreign missionaries american missionaries versus uh you know national pastors uh, there are a few different problems that could affect each group um you know accountability um and a couple other different different ways. Uh, but when we look at the actual uh, church and what we're trying to build, um, it, it just, the system itself, it, I feel like it's undermining it. Um, and it's kind of undoing our main objective, what we really want to accomplish. And you, you mentioned just, just now that you could go into the village, start handing out money and you, you, you'd have the, you'd have the biggest work in the Eastern province if you took that approach. Um, that's, that's really troubling. And, and you're not motivated to do that. And to be honest with you, you and I probably could not point to anybody that's motivated to just give out money that we're not even suggesting that that's, that that's really the issue. However, I think that some of this is fueled by the motivation to have results and to have them early on. And this is one of the observations that uh, John Nevius made, um, you know, almost a century ago, when when he points out two different models for church planning, this is what he had observed in China, and and one model pours a lot of foreign money into nationals early on to have big gains and significant results in the first phase of ministry, and then they spend the next several decades trying to wean those people off of that foreign money, whereas right. the other the other approach is to come in and take your time to get something started that's real, something right. that something that has local life, local leadership, where people are motivated by the call of God. By the by, the testimony of Jesus Christ, by the glory of the Lord, and 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 are and are stirred up by Bible principles rather than foreign dollars, that doesn't make for as much to write home about earlier, but it is, I think, going to produce a longer lasting ministry uh, in that in the con in that foreign context. Exactly, um, you know, you mentioned China, and it actually got me thinking about um, Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God. Um, Lisa and I are going through that. Um, but it reminded me of a part that he wrote where he was talking to the persecuted church in China. And if you think of any uh, body of believers that would be deserving of, of, of money and support, it definitely would, would be those that are suffering from persecution that are really feeling the heat because of their faith. And he wrote that when he met with these this persecuted group of believers, he was asking you know, about how many they were, and they were saying there were 10 million people, but like they had 400 current pastors that were in prison. And they said, can you go back to the States? Can you raise funding so that we can be helping the families of those that are in prison and those that are being persecuted? And I love his reply because it really embodies what we're trying to talk about. He said, if 10 million believers in your movement cannot take care of 400 families, do you have the right to call yourselves the body of Christ, the church, 
or even wow. followers of Jesus. Um, because, wow. you know, it's like with my guys, I was just talking to them last week as we are planning to go into um, a kingdom, a nearby chiefdom that's right next door to us. And uh, it, it's about 10 kilometers away, which is like, I don't know, 6.2 miles, um, which is pretty far for, um, you know, a guy on foot or with a bicycle, especially in the rainy season. And, and I was talking to them and I was like, how are you going to get there to this, this new kingdom to start this new Bible study? Logistics wise, what is your plan? And they said, well, we're going to, we're going to go there and we'll, we'll get our bike and we'll go and we'll, we'll figure it out. And, and they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, I've come, <laughs> I've come from America. I've, I've sacrificed to be here, to pour myself into you, to give you the tools to do this job. Now it's your time to sacrifice and to give so that your people can hear the same message. And so they're going to mm-hmm. take the gospel and they're going to go and, 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 and do what, um, what God has called us all to do, to be witnesses in our, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, and, and even the, the scenario that you described right there, that there is a temptation. And, and again, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to be over much critical about other brethren that do it other ways, but um, it would be easy for you, Brother Damon, to sit down, write a, a prayer letter and say, you know, we need three motorbikes. We're about to start a new, a, a new phase of our ministry, and these guys need to get to these villages but again, um, that doesn't give them the opportunity to actually own the ministry. And the other element is, you know, you, you've used the word dependency. Creating an unhealthy dependency is, is undermines the indigenous principle. And I, 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 right. I think that you and I don't I, I don't know. Precise, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't want to I don't I don't propose to know precisely how you think about this. But I think that as a general rule. Um, foreign workers, expats, the Americans working in foreign lands, you've, you've sort of got to look at your, at your ministry as in every likelihood, it's, it's going to have a shelf life. There, there are health issues. There are visa issues. Um, there are any number of things that could happen and, and you could have to leave the, you could have to leave the country. You, you, you might not have any, it, it, it may appear to have perfect stability, your, your mission in Zambia right now. But there's no guarantee that you'll be there five years from now. That's that's not to say that that's not your heart. I'm just simply saying that right. yeah. the goal the goal is for the missionary to establish something that will outlive his presence on the foreign field. Exactly. And and, and the men that I'm training, I want them to know that I have confidence in them that they can do it. Um, what a disservice I would be doing by persuading them that. They, just, they, they can't do it. They're not equipped. They can't do anything without me. Um, sure. I don't think that would be, I don't think that would be right because like you said, we want the foreign work to be self sustainable by the local people. Um, you know, people often compare the nationals standard of living to their own American standard and it's vastly different. Um, and we're often amazed that they can even accomplish anything with the little that they have so we undervalue them. We underestimate them. And by so doing, like I said, we've persuaded them that they can't serve God in their own environment without our help. Sure. And, and what that does is it takes God out of the equation. 
uh, money, money is not the answer to every, to, to every problem. It, the, the Lord has got to provide. And if these people don't learn, learn to live by faith, uh, it, the, the, the ministry is not going to get done. Exactly. Exactly. And if we don't put confidence in them, then how are they going to have confidence in themselves and confidence in God that God could even use them as vessels to do his work? So, Brother Damon, the uh, I th- I think that you might provide a, a a bit of a unique balance about this on this topic, and and that is because while you have some obviously some strong uh, convictions and have developed some some policies for your own work in Zambia concerning pouring financial resources into individuals and and supporting national workers with foreign funds. That is not to say that you are not extensively involved in investing in the local community. And so earlier in the conversation, you made reference to compassion projects or humanitarian projects. And so could you speak to that? How how are you going about investing in the community where your church is located? What prompted you to get involved in that way? And, and how are you going about it in such a way as to avoid crippling the people and creating a sense of dependency and establishing infrastructure that that is unsustainable by the by the national people there right um right now we do roughly three main things we we drill wells um, we do the joseph project and and then we also do another project called the baby baskets you know with the well drilling this has been really an, an amazing avenue to go out into different villages um, and really to hear the stories of the people that we're, we're dealing with in these remote locations, um, some of them have no water, which if we can just try to envision what that would be like. But, I mean, the women will literally walk kilometers, miles and miles to get to the nearest maybe river or shallow well um, and really drinking this sludge that it, it, it can't be healthy and it can't be healthy at all. And we actually did interviews at one village. There were women that were getting beaten by their husbands because they would go get water and they would end up being there well into the night. And because the, the well would go dry and they would have to wait for the water to come back up and then they would pump the water a little bit here, a little bit there. Anyways, they get home late and you know, the husband was thinking she was fooling around. Um, and, and we would hear so many stories like this, children that were getting beaten because they didn't come home with water. Um, and so when we would go into a village and we would drill a well, you say, what, what does it have to do with the church or the ministry? Um, but really, it gives us a platform to preach the gospel. It gives us a giant open door to go in and to really address the entire village and not just to, to speak to them one time, but to go back as many times as we want. Um, and we have people that, that really know that we care for their community, that we really um, we want to help them in some way. And, you know, after we drill the well, you know, they form a committee to take care of it, to do all of the well repairs on the pump itself. Um, but it gives us a platform. And that's kind of what we do with every project, um, because we have to we have to maintain that focus on why we're here, which is to give the gospel out and to raise up men and women for a great commission living. And so to use these projects in a way to further that goal is kind of what we're trying to do. 
Um, the Joseph Project is one that we're doing right now. Um, during the time when everyone is harvesting their maize, uh, you know, it's, there is such an abundance of maize everywhere that the price is pretty low. But by the time you get to January, uh, there's no maize left. There's no maize. There's no food in the village. And the maize that is being sold is like at, at twice the price. And so people literally are starving during this three-month period. You'll find a lot of um, malnourished children, um, people on the brink of starvation. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're doing the Joseph Project. But we kind of named it uh, after Genesis chapter 40 when Joseph was in Egypt and he bought the people's grain. And so we, we kind of opened our silo doors and we bought people's grain at a very fair price where they could definitely profit. And then come January, when there's a deficit, um, we're going to sell it back to them. The same maize that they sold to us, and we're going to sell it at, um, at, the, at the same price, which is going to be um, quite lower. And so they're going to really be able to have the means. Um, and so I look at this as a way of empowering the people because there are groups out there, even around us, that are just giving maize out to everybody freely. Um, right. But I wanted to do it this way again so that we're not creating a system of dependency and we're not sure. trying to build a sure. monster that uh, is going to need foreign funding to continue. We want it to be self-sustainable and to empower the people. I think it's it's difficult for uh, Americans to really kind of appreciate how important that is in in the third world from the standpoint that we're talking about we're talking about countries and and I think that uh, Zambia pr would probably fit this description countries that have have developed I'm talking about entire countries that have developed a sense of dependency to where they right. are that they, they, they are receiving nations, depending on donor nations to function and it, the the way you the way you recover from that is is it, it we're not going to correct that on on a political level in a foreign country that wouldn't be our business to but right. um, simultaneously with the objectives of the gospel we certainly want to teach people character biblical principles of of uh, independence of financial responsibility and the way you correct that is at the local level by by encouraging people to take responsibility for themselves and for their families and for their communities. And it, exactly. And it starts on a small basis. It's not like we're the United Nations, but um, wherever you start, you've got to you've got to teach your people uh, the things that are going to to help to raise them up. Culture and civilization, if we could call it, um, it it should issue um, in some sense from the gospel as the result of discipleship. But so how do you per personally, how do you avoid the mission shift? How, how do you avoid losing the, the focus on the, on the spiritual goal? Because once those spiritual goals are, are lost, even the, even the so-called compassion projects have, uh, will, will have essentially uh, lost their utility in, in, at least exactly. in the work of missions. So how do you keep sure. how do you keep that focus? How do you keep the main thing the main thing for you personally? I look at the projects that we do, whether the well drilling, the Joseph project, the baby baskets, and certainly there is a possibility of getting caught up with the sheer volume of need in the village, and that could consume you. Where 
you just get so focused on that that you lose sight of the spiritual. Um, for me personally, I, I, I have to look at it as a way, as a platform of accomplishing our main goal, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we have the baby baskets program, um, a, a large part of that program is teaching all of the women for, for like three, four hours, the gospel presentation. Um, when we do the Joseph project, we're going to prioritize the gospel message. Um, when we have these people coming in to get the grain, we're going to be giving them the gospel. When we drill a well, we, we're always preaching the gospel and we always try to establish Bible studies in that village. And so we're looking at Amen. these projects as ways that we can um, kind of integrate ourselves in the community in a way that um, they can know that, hey, they, we can trust these guys and, uh, sure. and they're, really, they're really here for us. So as you as you build social and relational equity, it opens up opportunities for the spread of the gospel. It gives credibility to your spiritual uh, objectives. And um, it, it's, of, of course, a lot of this comes down to the missionary and the local church just walking with God, having a relationship with the Lord and, and keeping the main thing, the main thing spiritually in, in one's own heart. So that's a... Uh, if if these programs and these compassion projects, these outreach projects of a humanitarian nature can be used in that way, and 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 not present a distraction to the main to the main thing, uh, if if you if you see you have brother your brother have need and shut up your bowels of compassion, well, um, <laughs> that's a problem. And that's, that's kind of where we are. I mean, because literally there is so much suffering around us um, on a level that I can't even describe. And so for, for me to, you know, in the early days, I would be trying to preach and I would have someone shout out, <laughs> you know, hey, we're, we're starving. <laughs> How can we hear the gospel if we're starving? Wow. Um, and obviously we are not trying to build some kind of um, welfare system because everything that we try to do, like if we're trying to help, we want to we wanna find a way to help the people, to empower them so that they can have and retain a sense of dignity about themselves that they know they can provide for their own families, that they can do it. So whether we're talking about people in need of food or people in need of water or even national pastors, I want them to know they can do it. They can take care of their families. They can lead the church. They can grow the ministry. They can go out to the regions beyond um, in, their, uh, in their own strength with what they have uh, with the gospel, uh, empowered by God. Well, it's certainly the goal is to see the people take ownership of the work of God and walk by faith and depend not on foreign money, not on foreign missionaries, but upon the Lord himself. And and when they can see God work on their behalf, uh, there's no substitute for that, for sure. Brother Damon, I really appreciate you uh, interacting with these subjects uh, with us. Always uh, appreciate reading uh, about what's going on there in uh, in the eastern province of Zambia. Uh, love that. I, I personally love that part of the world. I really have a heart for those for those people, for the uh, the Bantu peoples in, in general. And, and I, I love that region of the world. And I am thankful for men such as yourself that are that are making a difference. So. I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to have the conversation today. 
Well, praise the Lord. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And like you mentioned, uh, these are conversations that, that need to be had. And so I think it's a great topic. It's a great springboard that really should motivate us to evaluate what are we doing and how are we doing it. Maybe we can do it a little better uh, with the Lord's help. So thank you so much. I feel like we've really only scratched the surface of this important topic. If you'd like a counter-argument to the one presented in today's interview, I would refer you to my two-part interview with John Nelms entitled, The Case for Supporting Nationals. He was advocating for the support of church planters in particular, whereas our conversation today was a bit more broad. At the very least, it should be acknowledged that pouring foreign money into national workers comes with inherent dangers. There is the risk of professionalizing the ministry and thereby undermining calling and provoking a mercenary spirit among God's servants. It runs the risk of undermining the trust and mutual respect between the people and their spiritual leaders. And it runs the risk of creating a dependency that could undermine the indigenous nature of the church. Can these risks be effectively mitigated? Can it be done right? I wouldn't rule out the possibility entirely, but it is a very complicated proposition to be sure. If you'd like to do some more research on this topic, there are some contemporary works warning of the problems associated with foreign money in third world missions. Brother Damon mentioned a book called Toxic Charity. Another title would be When Charity Destroys Dignity. My personal favorite related to this topic was originally published in 1886. It's entitled The Planting and Development of Missionary Churches, and it's written by John L. Nevius. This is a subject that really is worth our careful consideration. This interview is the 22nd and final interview in this first season of Great Commission Conversations. I very much appreciate those of you who have tuned in. If the program has been a blessing to you, I would love to hear from you. I'd also appreciate it if you could rate the program wherever you listen to it or pass it along to other believers that have an interest in missions. Thanks again for tuning in to today's Great Commission Conversation. I invite you to subscribe to the program and keep an eye out for Season 2 beginning in January. We have some great conversations with some of God's choice servants that are making a difference in Christ's Great Commission around the world. As always, you can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. Thank you.